explorers and peaceful revolutionaries. Hello, everybody. This is Tom Bushlack, and welcome to episode 14 of Contemplate This, Conversations on Contemplation and Compassion. This interview is with Father Lawrence Freeman. I first met Father Lawrence at the New Contemplative Exchange in Snowmass, Colorado in August of 2017. He was there as one of the representatives of what we affectionately call the Big Four, the Big Four networks and leaders of Christian contemplative practice on the globe right now. In fact, my original goal for this podcast was to start by interviewing all of the big four. So Father Richard Rohr from the Center for Action and Contemplation was my first guest on episode one. The Reverend Dr. Tilden Edwards of the Shalem Institute was my guest for episode three. Father Thomas Keating was the representative from Contemplative Outreach. Unfortunately, his health declined rapidly and he passed away in October. So Father Lawrence sort of rounds out the series. Lawrence is a Benedictine monk of the Monastery of Santa Maria de Pilastrello and the director of the World Community for Christian Meditation. The World Community, or WCCM as it's known by its acronym, is in over 100 countries. Pretty impressive. It's the largest international network for handing on the teachings and practices of Christian contemplation, especially in the tradition handed down from Father John Main, also a Benedictine monk. In fact, Father John Maine mentored Father Lawrence, and one of the more fascinating parts of this interview for me was listening to Father Lawrence tell Father John's story and his own relationship with this important teacher in the tradition. One of my favorite memories of meeting Father Lawrence at the New Contemplative Exchange was a pithy comment that he made that has stuck with me, and he said, it turns out that being Christian is about more than just going to church and judging people. Uh, It was a comical moment, but it's a statement that's both kind of funny and a little bit sad at the same time. Uh, It captures how this emerging renewal of Christian contemplation and practice represents a way of faith that is deeply grounded in faith in Jesus Christ as followers and radically open to others at the same time. It's something that many of us feel is both needed and hopeful, both in the church and in theology and in our broader society at this time in history. If you're interested in following up on anything, you can find the show notes at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 14. So that's the word episode 14 with no spaces. There you'll find links to some of Father Lawrence's books, as well as some of the writings of Father John Main links to the World Community for Christian Meditation and their Meditatio project, and a link to the new center that uh, Father Lawrence discusses in this podcast in Bonneville, France. If you are able and you feel so moved, I am, in fact, very grateful for any support that you can provide. And you can do this in one of two ways, uh, either by making a free will donation um, to offset the costs for creating and hosting the podcast, which you can do at a fully secure site at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash donate, or by writing reviews wherever you download your podcasts. Both of those are incredibly helpful, and I'm incredibly grateful. All right, with that intro, let's get right into my interview with Father Lawrence Freeman. Okay, Father Lawrence Freeman, thank you for being here on Contemplate This. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you. 
Yeah. So why don't you introduce yourself? Um, tell us a little bit about your background and maybe the world community for Christian meditation, and we'll just kind of go from there. Okay, I'll give you the, the potted version. Yes? <laughs> well, we might unpack it a little bit. Well, I'm uh, a Benedictine monk. Uh, I uh, have three passports, Irish, British, and Canadian. Um, I was born and brought up in, uh, in London. I went to a Benedictine school and uh, studied English literature at Oxford. Uh, worked for a while in the United Nations and in banking and had, had a rather inglorious career in banking, but I just wanted to, to know what made the world um, go around financially and, uh, and in journalism. Hmm. Then I uh, made a long retreat at the monastery of uh, John Main, who was my teacher, spiritual teacher. And at the end of that uh, long retreat, I decided, uh, I discovered really that I no longer had the kind of ambition I had before. So I was rather in a, from a worldly point of view anyway, and I was rather um, caught in a double bind, but resolved it by saying, well, I'll try and be a monk and see if it works. And uh, as soon as I made my decision to do that, I felt peace. And I, I think I've been at peace ever since, really. Uh, oh. it, with that decision, although, you know, there've been ups and downs, of course, but so, um, I have a, a physical monastery, of course, but my, my, uh, other, uh, monastery in a sense is the monastery without walls, which is the world community for Christian meditation, which has grown up over the last 30 or 40 years as a contemplative community based on the teaching and the sharing of uh, and the practice of meditation in the Christian tradition. And it's been wonderful to see it grow and develop and um, reach a point now where we, we, we have uh, an outreach into the secular world. We can take this way of prayer into the secular world and share it, you know, with people who are very often desperate for what meditation um, has to offer them in terms of spiritual reconnection and, and depth. And uh, I'm on the point of uh, moving my, my base uh, to our new home uh, in France, uh, Bonveau. Um, and I will be moving there at Easter, where we'll be celebrating our first uh, Easter there. Mm. Um, and that will be my base uh, from, from, from then on. Mm. So, my teacher, uh, John Main, of course, had a great uh, impact on me. And um, he was the one who introduced me to meditation when I least expected it, really. I was in my first year at university, and I went to see him over some issues and problems that I had and some losses in my life. And to my surprise, uh, at the end of one of our conversations, he introduced me to meditation in a very few words in a very light touch and I wasn't expecting it and yet it had a powerful impact on me really um, a double impact because intellectually the way he described meditation made no sense to me intellectually but maybe and, on purpose what's that <laughs> maybe on purpose 
maybe, maybe. <laughs> well, I was on a very, you know, monocular uh, search for truth and God and wisdom uh, in an intellectual uh, dimension, and suddenly to be told that in meditation you let go of your thoughts was a bit uh, surprising. Mm. It seemed like pulling the plug out of a computer and expecting the computer to work. You know? <laughs> But, I like uh, that metaphor, actually. Yeah. But then he, uh, but at the same time, it touched my heart and it maybe it awakened my heart in a way. And uh, I knew that what he said was totally authentic. And it awakened in me a, a real desire for, for this experience and this knowledge. But uh, desire itself wasn't enough. And I struggled, uh, you know, at that age. I, I didn't, there was no support structure no meditation groups that i could find really helpful and so i i made rather a, a bad attempt to make meditation part of my life and that's what led me to make that long retreat and then it mm. came together so now you this was after university that you encountered or when was this that you encountered john main well, I, I met I met John Main uh, much earlier in my life when I was a boy at school. Although I wouldn't say he he had that kind of spiritual impact on me at the time. Mm. But um, so I, I and I kept in touch with him uh, over the years. And as I said, it was in my first year at university. My sister had died, and I was facing a lot of questions and difficulties. And um, he invited me out to Washington, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, Washington DC um, where he was headmaster of a Benedictine school here at the time and I came out and spent Easter in the monastery and uh, it was then that uh, that was my first introduction to meditation. Okay so John Main plays an interesting role in the kind of rebirth of or maybe rebirth isn't the right word rediscovery of uh, Christian contemplative practice so can you fill listeners in on a little bit of that history and then um, whatever you would want to say, you know, not being in the context of official teaching, but about the practice that he taught you. Yes. Well, uh, maybe just a, a brief uh, background to, to, to his journey because his journey is part of long stories. That yeah, but it's an, it's an interesting one and an important one in, in the tradition. Sure, yeah. That, and, that you're carrying on now. And we're all part of somebody else's story as well, aren't we? we nobody has a totally uh, autonomous story. So that's what uh, tradition is, is passing on, I suppose. Well, anyway, John Main uh, was an Irish uh, Irishman. He became a... yeah. Well, he, 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 he went out uh, in the 1950s. He went out to... Malaya, as it then was, Malaysia, as it is now, uh, as part of the British um, Foreign Service. And um, one day he was asked to go and visit an Indian monk who had become a justice of the peace under the British authority and had started a, um, a centre for reconciliation and peace. Malaya was in a turmoil of uh, ethnic and religious violence at the time. And um, this monk had started a centre and also an orphanage for the children who were the victims of the war. So John Main was uh, sent out to, to visit him and thank him for his good work. And when he'd done that, the conversation turned to spiritual matters and he realised 
he was in the presence of a very holy man, a man of deep interiority as well as a great action. Hmm. So, um, and John Main was a, a religious man, a practicing Catholic, and took his faith very seriously. So they turned uh, to prayer, and the monk asked him if he prayed, and he explained how he prayed. Um, and the monk said, well, it's a wonderful thing to find a man of the world who who's, takes prayers as seriously as you do. And then he went on to speak about meditation as central to his idea of prayer. And something in what he said touched uh, John Main, as it touched me when he told me. Um, in a way, it resonated with John Main when he heard that a phrase particularly of the Upanishads that the monk used, that the spirit of the one who creates the universe dwells within the human heart and in silence is loving to all. Mm. And it wasn't only the words, but the, the way in which they were uttered by this monk. And also it, it resonated with his own Christian belief in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And, um, and when he was told that about this way, and he asked the monk about meditation, when he was told about how he meditated, um, again, this intrigued him and resonated with a lot of his own basic ideas about prayer, but clarified them in a way. So the monk said, when, when you pray, we, we leave aside thoughts, words, and images. When we, in order to do that, we take a word, a mantra, and we repeat this word or phrase continuously during the time of the meditation. And, uh, and we remain focused on that. And, and it's a regular practice. So again, this resonated not exactly with what John, John May knew, of course, because meditation in this way it was something uh, new to him, at least. But at the same time, it resonated with aspects of prayer that he was familiar with. And um, so he said to the monk, well, I'm a, a Christian, as you know, but I wonder whether you could teach me to meditate. So the monk said, well, of course, you know, you'll be a better Christian if you do. <laughs> So he took a, a Christian uh, word, a Christian mantra, and um, the monk said to him, uh, he said to the monk, you know, could I, could you teach me, could you teach me? And he said, well, I, I can teach you, but only if you're serious. And he said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, it means that you do it and do it every morning and every evening. Do it for half an hour in the morning, half an hour in the evening. And if you want to do that, he said, I'll make time, you can come and see me once a week, we'll meditate together and ask, we'll discuss any questions you have. So that, um, that happened, he was serious about it, uh, he went back and meditated for about two years with this monk, and it became an, an integral part of his own, uh, his own uh, spiritual uh, life. So then he, uh, he came back uh, to Europe, uh, he became a professor of law, a few years later in Ireland, a few years later, he became a Benedictine monk in London. And when he spoke again, this was in the late 50s, so a long time before anyone knew much about meditation. Uh, and, and before Vatican II. Before yeah. Vatican II, before the yeah. Beatles. Yeah. So when he 
spoke to his novice master about meditation yeah. and about this way of prayer that he had learned. For him, it was a way of prayer. Uh, he, uh, the, the novice master said, well, he said, uh, I, I'm not, I don't think that's really a Christian way of prayer. So I think you should, uh, you should give it up and, and start again. Hmm. So in those days, monks were obedient, you see. So. <laughs> well, you, technically, you still take a vow of obedience, but <laughs> that's right. how you live it. Open to interpretation. <laughs> but uh, so, he, you know, he, reckon, he, I suppose, reckoned, well, I've, I've, come, I've given up everything. I've come to be a monk and open myself to God's will and direction in this form of life. And so he gave up meditation, although he said it was like going into a spiritual desert. But of course, he was nourished by other forms of prayer and he loved the monastic life. Hmm. But it was some years later, actually, he was in the States. He was in Washington, headmaster of a school here in the late 60s, social revolution, collapse of the church, uh, students, monks leaving to get married, students taking pot and everything. So, <laughs> well, they don't do that anymore. No, no, no. So, uh, but a young American student came to see him uh, just before I, I came, actually. Well, about a year before I came to see him. And he, uh, he said, I've just been all around uh, Asia. Uh, I was brought up as a Catholic and, uh, I wanted to find out about meditation in the Asian traditions. And I have, I've been all around India and Japan and everywhere else. And um, so I'm back here now and I just wanted to know, is there anything like this in Christianity? Mm. So it was a challenging question. Uh, and this, it brought, it let, so John Lane worked with him and they went back the teachings of the Desert Fathers, the early Christian monks. And it was there in the conferences of John Cassian, the teacher of St. Benedict, especially two conferences on prayer, mm -hmm. that he found, recognized, I think is a better word, he recognized the, the method of prayer, uh, the prayer of the heart, that Cassian taught, which essentially is the same as the Jesus prayer or the Hesychastic prayer of the Orthodox Church. And he just recognized it. Cassian says, um, take your formula, is the Latin word, take your phrase, take your word, and repeat it uh, continuously, turning it over and over in your heart, abandoning all the riches of thought and imagination, until molded by the constant repetition of the single verse, you come with ready ease to the first of the Beatitudes, poverty of spirit. Mm. And then he has a long description of various states of mind that you will pass through as you undertake this practice. And he says there will be times of prosperity and times of adversity. And in each state of mind that you go through, just leave aside the thoughts and return to the word. So, that was, that was John Lane's uh, journey, and uh, as he, when he recognized it and associated it with what he'd learned uh, as a young man in the Far East, it came together for him now in his own tradition, and uh, he devoted really the rest of his life to, 
to teaching it because he felt this was a great lacuna, a great gap in Christian spirituality and uh, in, in, in the Western church especially. So, and um, so I, I jo joined him and uh, learned from him. And when he died in 1982, uh, I was still a young monk, but um, I carried on as best I could. I asked him before he died uh, what he thought I should do. He said, uh, you'll do what you've got to do. It wasn't very helpful at the time. <laughs> well, it's always the dying words of a monk that are so cryptic. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if that gives you a, maybe gives you a little sense. No, of it does. Yeah. I, so I was curious about, um, I mean, I've heard his story before, but I haven't heard it told quite that way. Um, the, the choice of the word Maranatha, was that something that came to him when he was in India was that something he came back to later when he was reading John Cashin? Um, and where, where does that, f and, and how important is that in your mind to the actual practice, the choice of the word? Well, uh, I think it is, it's important to choose a word that is, that is if, if, if you have a tradition, it yeah. would be to take a word that is sacred in your own tradition. I was just talking to a, a Japanese student here in Georgetown, where I am at the moment, in a class we have in the business school, Meditation and Leadership. And uh, he told me that, um, you know, that, that, that he, he was practicing the, the method we teach, but he was using a, a Japanese phrase and mantra that he had learned to, as a child. So I think it's important to uh, choose a word that's sacred in your own tradition. It's helpful if it's not in your own language because it doesn't stimulate thought and imagination. And uh, the sound and the length of the word is also important. It helps to calm the mind and to uh, be able to say it rhythmically. So those are important. In, in the Christian tradition, you could take the name Jesus or the word Abba, for example. We recommend uh, Maranatha because uh, th for these reasons, it's a sacred word, the oldest prayer, one of the oldest prayers in the Christian canon, and um, in Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke, St. Paul ends the first letter to the Corinthians with it. When John Main uh, began meditating again, he reread the New Testament. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if it was in one sitting, but he reread <laughs> it in a, in a, uh, with new eyes and it, with real freshness. And he said to me that as he read it, you know, one of the words that came out for him was, of course, the word Maranatha, mm. which St. Paul keeps in Aramaic, although he's writing in Greek. So it was already a sacred word, <coughs> excuse me, in the tradition. So that's the word um, he, he recommended. He didn't say it was the only word, of course, but it, it's, a, it's a beautiful Christian sacred word or mantra, and um, it's one that, um, in fact, uh, we offer to, to people, um, if they had no tradition, uh, and as many people do today, they come to it from a very secular mm -hmm. uh, background, um, we, were offered that we would offer them that word if they wish. Mm -hmm. The important thing is then, of course, is to stay with the same word, so that you don't chop and change. 
so that this allows the word then to sink more deeply into the heart and into your consciousness. Mm. Yeah, and for those listening who might not be familiar with the the text that you're talking about, the Maranatha translates as "Come, Holy Spirit." Is that how you would do it? Come, Lord. Come, Lord. Oh, right. Yeah. Thank L- you. Literally, it means "Come, Lord." Understood to mean "Come, Lord Jesus." Yeah. In that context. Yeah. Okay. So something you touched upon there was that. Um, you were talking about John Maine, but it, probably in your experience as well, that when introduced to meditation and, and contemplative practice, that it, it sort of changes one's relationship with your home tradition. So he went back and read scripture with new eyes. Um, what Have you had similar re-encounters with your tradition through the practice or ways in which you've seen that play out for, for people that you've taught or worked with? Yes, I mean, Cassian, back in the 5th century, in the 10th conference, describes how he and his friend Germanus started to meditate in this way, the way they were taught by Abba Isaac, of the, of the, of one of the fathers of the desert. And they said, at first they thought this would be a really easy way of prayer. It was attractive because it seemed to address the problem of distractions, the wandering mind, the need for focus, and they were, they were really concerned. Here they were, sitting out in the middle of the desert, devoting <laughs> themselves to seeking God uh, with a single mind, and what do they do? They find themselves daydreaming, and they find themselves thinking about what's going on in, in the city. In Damascus, uh, yeah. <laughs> remembering their past uh, sins and so on. Mm-hmm. So... They were very worried about the wandering mind, just as we today. I was talking to these MBA students today, and they're all very concerned about their levels of stress and anxiety, and behind that, their awareness of of how difficult it is to pay attention. So Cassian says, when he began to meditate in this way, he found it wasn't as simple, it wasn't as easy as it sounded. Yeah. Simple, not easy. But the first thing that he found it, to, it did was help him as a man of scripture who lived and fed on scripture every day. It was that it, it, it brought him to a new depth of perception and understanding of the meaning of scripture, as if he had written it himself, he says. Mm. Now, for myself, I would say I was brought up as a Catholic. When I reached adolescence, I didn't reject the church angrily, but it just I drifted away because it didn't seem to have much relevance to the questions and the issues and, that I was dealing with. And it was meditation that brought me back. Uh, and I, I'm grateful for that early training and the induction into the symbolism and the stories and the scriptures. But without meditation, I think, I, I, I don't know. I, I think um, it would have been very difficult for me to, to regain a sense of their depth and, um, and, and significance. So, and I think that's true for a great many people in different ways. Returning to the experience that meditation opens up for us, 
then allows the, 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 the scriptures and the rituals and the symbols of, uh, of faith to glow again, you know, and to, and to have, uh, to be attractive and to be, you know, instructive. I, and I, that's continued to be the case. I mean, at the same time, what I would say I found is that as it centered me more specifically and deeply, richly in the Christian, uh, Christian identity, it also has opened me to the truth that you find in other traditions. Mm-hmm. Not to be frightened of that, you know. Um, you know, if we find uh, truth in Buddhism or in Hinduism or in any other uh, tradition, we should treat that truth as sacred, because for us, it cannot be incompatible with Christ. And um, this is what Clement of Alexandria said in the second century. You know, nothing. That is nothing that is not against nature can be against Christ. Mm. So I think meditation experientially brings you to that that um, point of both specific identity and at the same time as it not being a restrictive or defensive identity. Yeah. Well, there's there's two interesting things that you touched upon there. I think one is um, the way in which the the practice itself kind of uh, on one on the one hand it solidifies a particular identity as belonging to this Christian tradition, while at the same time opens oneself to other traditions, to experiencing and appreciating truth in other traditions, which I think is maybe difficult for some people to fathom. <laughs> um, and the other thing that that you touched upon is, is that question of, of relevance of that for a lot of people today, I think finding a practice, a meditation practice, contemplative practice um, is the thing that kind of saves the tradition um, and, and links it to daily life, to professional life, to relationships, to, um, to having um, an encounter with God or with, with Christ of some kind. Um, so I don't know if either of those two things <laughs> sparks more thoughts in, in terms of the current interest for you in, in meditation. Yes, I think um, there's something uh, essential about the mystery of Christ in all of that. I mean, Christ, uh, we believe in the incarnation. That's that what happens in Jesus of Nazareth um, and in his life. For those years, I'm, I'm going to the Holy Land in a, a few days. Mm. Uh, what happened to him in those few years of his life and in that particular small part of the world, which he didn't seem to stray too far away from. Uh, so that's the specificity. But we also, you know, that's not, he's not just a... Um, you know, a, a wise teacher who lived 2,000 years ago. We believe and, and sense and 
that that's the wonder of Christian faith, and it's amazingly uh, transcends um, expectations. Um, there's a universality about that that touches uh, every human being uh, forwards and backwards in time. This means that it's the it's the word of God present from the beginning of time, made flesh. I, I'm very struck uh, by this question that uh, somebody posed once. What, what is the sacred language of... Let me, let me ask you. For the, <laughs> I think you'll know the answer. I feel like what, it's a test. Okay. <laughs> it was the sacred language of, uh, of, um, of the Hindus. Sanskrit. Yeah. What's the sacred language of uh, the the Jews? Hebrew. What's the sacred language of the Muslims? Uh, um, Arabic. (laughs) And what's the sacred language of Christians? Greek, but I'm not sure most people would would say that. Or I guess they'd say Latin if you're Catholic, but... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We don't know Aramaic. Well, we, we have about we only have a few words of Aramaic. We yeah, don't we don't know the exact words of Jesus, do we? Yeah, except in translation. So, uh, so the sacred language of Christians or Christianity is the body. Hmm. God took a body or entered into, transformed a body. What did that do? It transformed our relation and understanding of the material world. So what we, you know, a lot of of religious people complain today about the secularization of the world. But actually, this is is the fault of Christianity. It's Christianity that secularized the world because when you take this doctrine or this revelation of the incarnation to its logical conclusion, there is no separate sacred zone or sacred language. It's the human condition itself that is being penetrated by, by the divine mm. uh, inclusively. So I think meditation uh, brings us to this common ground, the sense of personal and universal unity. Um, and that's that's the next era of Christianity. I think we, we we're evolving from a hierarchical medieval um, form of Christianity uh, into a new form. We've we've gone through many different forms of it already, but the new form it seems to me that we're moving into is is a is a contemplative Christianity, which is. A closer brings us closer to the to the essence of 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 the Christian mystery, and it's what um, it's uh, you know what uh, Rana Karl Rana said you know the Christian of the future will be mystic or there won't be any Christians. Yeah, he said that. Well, I don't know. It was about forty. Yeah, I think it was in the fifties or sixties somewhere in there. Oh, a long time ago. Yeah, it was very prophetic, and I think we can see that happening today. Huh. 
So I, you're touching upon something that I've thought about a good amount recently is, is this um, the bemoaning by among some of a kind of growing secularism. Um, but the flip side of that is almost kind of a, that the God who's being encountered or not encountered, if you want to be paradoxical, is, is that hidden God that say John of the cross and some of the other um, apophatic <laughs> mystics talk about. Mm. Um, so I don't, is that kind of your read on um, the broader secular trend right now or disaffection with Christianity or, cause I agree with you that there is kind of something new emerging that's exciting. Um, and there's, I don't know where, where you see that if you want to be prophetic for a minute. <laughs> well, uh, I, I think being prophetic doesn't mean predicting the future. <laughs> no, I know, <laughs> but what's happening right now, right? Or where is God? Well, I mean, what's happening right now, for example, in, in August in Vancouver, we'll be having uh, John Main Seminar. It's hosted in a different country every year. And uh, in August of 2019, it'll be host in, um, hosted in uh, Canada and Vancouver. And it will be led by a, a young uh, Anglican priest, Sarah Bachelard, who's a oh. very uh, remarkable uh, theologian. Um, on, and the theme is contemplative Christianity. And following that, uh, for a smaller group, there will be of younger contemplative teachers. There will be a, uh, a gathering uh, which is called Contemplative Exchange, uh, which first happened actually when Thomas Keating uh, summoned uh, Richard Raw, myself, and Tilden Edwards uh, to Snowmass and wanted to talk uh, before he died of um, the future of contemplative life in the church and how our different communities and networks could collaborate. And out of that came a, a meeting, uh, as you well know, because you were there. Uh, <laughs> you say that's how we met. A meeting of, uh, of young contemplative teachers from different traditions or different Christian traditions. And it was fantastic. I mean, it was... It was something new. It opened up. It opened up uh, horizons uh, for me, which showed that we shouldn't just look at the negativities or the or the failures or the or the decline uh, of Christian forms and congregations and lack of PR success and. <laughs> the negativity with which many people respond to the word Christian. That's there. That's part of the culture. It's part of the evolution we're going through. But um, there's something else opening up. And we don't know what it is. We don't know what form it will take. It will be much more pluralistic, much less monolithic. Uh, I think there'll, there'll still be a wonderful celebration of different Christian traditions uh, denominations, but it will be a non-denominational or post-denominational mm. Christianity as well. So, uh, and there will, you know, I, I think the contemplative dimension or the contemplative dimension, yes, of the gospel is waiting to be released, and it has been 
largely repressed, ignored, or forgotten, or... All of the above in some form, right? Yeah. And once a, once a contemplative practice, I'm not saying this way of meditation is the only way to do it, but once a contemplative practice, a serious contemplative discipline, awakens you personally to this interior dimension of reality and uh, if you like as brain scientists would say the right hemisphere of the brain but once it opens you to this other dimension of consciousness then when you go back to read the scriptures you see what what they're talking about you know what the parables mean uh, and or, or depths of meaning and you suddenly realize you know christianity isn't this heavy, moralistic, condemnatory <laughs> um, uh, religiosity. It's a religion, it's a mystical religion of transformation and of social transformation. Mm-hmm. Because the two go together. You know, the kingdom of heaven bridges the interior and the exterior dimensions of reality. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is within you and among you. It's unobservable, but it is real and it changes everything uh, that comes into contact with it. So uh, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I, I must say I felt in recent years, I mean, when we first started teaching meditation, there was a lot of resistance mm. uh, in among Christians. Um, a, char- a lot of charismatics at that time would, uh, we, you know, would feel that this was this was really dangerous. Or and you can still find that thread, but yeah. yeah. And then, but, it, but now, now I think charismatic. You can be charismatic and meditate. Well, that's true. Yeah. No, I mean, just that I've I've definitely encountered a little bit of that strand of skepticism, but on the whole, it's been more receptive recently. I think you're right. It's it's declined. Yeah. It's still there. I mean, we have have to recognize along with this contemplative awakening, there's also uh, a a resurgence of fundamentalism. Mm. Wouldn't you agree with that? I I would. Yeah. Yeah. But it's almost like a, um, I don't know. I kind of, I don't want to be dismissive, um, but it strikes me as a kind of last gasp for the old kind of certainties, uh, a kind of medieval certainty yeah. that people look back to. And, um, while something else is being opened up, I don't yeah. know. The thing is it works. This all works out on such a, <laughs> on a scale that we can't, I know. But I, I think you're. I think you're right. There's a, there's definitely a historical process underway. I well, and I I appreciated what you said earlier too, because I think when I'm in when I'm in a better space and rooted in my practice, um, I can recognize those things. Uh, say the more fundamentalist movements, um, recognize them, but not get so caught up in them emotionally, yeah. um, but rather say, well, my path here is to commit to the contemplative dimension, to my practice, to teach 
uh, to live out of that um, and witness to that and, and even sort of be a midwife to that as part of a broader community. Um, and then remember that there is that, that bigger process happening that is, that is um, not mine to control, but to participate in. Yes, exactly. No, I agree. I think there are incremental, I mean, this question of progress is, is, is an interesting one, isn't it? We, we mm. Progress is being linear, and then we get really disappointed when you get a period like the 20th century, which <laughs> like, it looks technical, economic progress, but in many ways, you know, the most violent century ever. Mm-hmm. And uh, to collapse back into barbarism from some of the most civilized nations on the earth. So progress isn't, isn't quite as, um, as uh, certain or predictable. And, and even now, I mean, there are really dangerous signs of relapse, of regression. Um, you know, I just read today that um, Russia is, is looking at ways of cutting itself off from the Internet. Oh, interesting. Huh. You know, have, you know this, this obsession, this lust for complete control and, and domination and uh, and that you know that those, those dark forces can be very irresistible for a while and do huge amount of damage eventually they implode and explode but in the meantime so I think we face a, a challenge today about um, recognizing the, the severity of the crisis, but realizing maybe we can change direction. Or even plant, plant the seeds for a future yes. change. Yeah. There's a Chinese proverb, if you keep going in the same direction, you will get to the place where you are going. Yeah. <laughs> In other words, words, if you want to change, if you want to, if you can see yourself going over the edge of a cliff, well, change direction. Yeah. So that's one approach. The other approach is if there isn't a critical mass of people to change direction. And it says in the Book of Wisdom that the hope for the salvation of the world lies in the greatest number of wise people. Mm. But if there isn't a critical mass or sufficient number of wise people, then um, there may be uh, uh, collapses. I mean, we already have the means of avoiding we have all the knowledge and all the resources to be able to solve world poverty much more effectively and justly than we are at the moment. And we have the means of correcting the environmental imbalance. It's not, you know, rocket science anymore. Yeah. We can't, we can't get the common mind, uh, the collaboration to do it. So if, if we were, fail to bring about that unity of purpose, that sense of being one race or human race, human, we, will, uh, we will have to rely upon maybe an infrastructure of a secret, I mean, a, <laughs> a, a secret, but I mean, a hidden infrastructure of um, 
contemplative consciousness that will help to rebuild afterwards. Yeah. We, we don't know which of those will happen or whether it will be total or partial. But we have to, we had a wonderful seminar this uh, last year, uh, Don Main seminar called A Contemplative Approach to the Crisis of Change. Mm. And we had speakers from politics and science and medicine and social action, philosophy, um, business and finance, economics. And Charles Taylor, the philosopher, was speaking and also help, helping us to put these different strands together. Um, he's probably more than anybody else helped us to understand the meaning of a secular age. Yeah. In his book. Yeah. So somebody asked him at the end of the conference, do you feel hopeful about the future? Mm. So he paused for quite a few moments and everybody was waiting, <laughs> hanging on his words. And uh, he said, well, there is an optimism, sorry, there is a, a pessimism of the intellect, but an optimism of the will. Mm. <laughs> and I think that probably touched it quite neatly, how we have to approach it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you mentioned before meditation sort of um, opening up what uh, new dimensions of awareness that in neuroscientists would link to the right hemisphere and the deeper levels of consciousness that kind of reside there. Um, and then you've, um, so you, you mentioned that earlier and then you've been talking about um, that we have sort of the, we have a lot of the left brain knowledge we need to solve some of our problems, but we don't, we haven't necessarily figured out how to connect that collectively. Um, so, and, and you talked about the, the social dimension of this movement. So, um, yeah, where do you see meditation and contemplation helping to link that? Well, I don't think meditation magically solves all your problems. You know, if you, <laughs> if you have a problem in your marriage or you have... Oh, come on. <laughs> How are we supposed to sell it if we can't just... <laughs> well, wait, wait till I finish. Oh, okay, okay. Take us there. No, it, it, so, okay, you've got a problem, you've got an overdraft, you've got yeah. a health problem, you've got a, a relational problem. Before you meditate, after you get up from meditation, the problem is still there. You haven't solved the problem magically by meditation by meditating. However, you can you you can see, understand, and relate to that problem very differently with uh, a detachment and clarity and and a lower level of anxiety or fear. So you're in a much better place to to deal with it and solve it. So uh, that's the first thing you have to be realistic about how meditation could lead to social transformation. It leads, it, it will, of course it will lead to social transformation if there are enough people who have allowed themselves to be personally transformed by it. Um, how do you, how you do that? Well, who do you think are the most difficult people to teach meditation to? Uh, <laughs> uh, people who are sure of the truth. <laughs> yes, getting close. <laughs> if you were to identify a particular 
professional group? Oh man, uh, a clergy. Pretty good guess. <laughs> and who who do you think the easiest, most receptive group of human beings to teach meditation to? Children. Exactly. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this because I know in the world community you've done probably more with teaching this practice to children than say contemplative outreach or some of the other organizations that I'm familiar with. Yeah. Well, um, we have, and it, it's been, it began a long time ago. It became in, in a more informal way. Uh, but then it, uh, about 15 years ago, a diocese, Catholic diocese in Australia decided to, um, introduce it systematically and with confidently to all its schools. And it did that very professionally and very effectively. And so I was just there recently and it's just entered into the culture of Catholic education. Hmm. Now that, you know, Catholic Catholic schools doesn't mean that every child goes to mass every Sunday or uh, continues to practice uh, Catholic faith uh, it doesn't may, may not have any quite likely they don't have much practice at all. However, this is an element of that of the Catholic Christian uh, culture of the the meaning of the school that that meditation is taught as part of it, and it has been deeply accepted and. Uh, and enjoyed, I mean, children and teenagers like meditation. I mean, it's not difficult. It's not difficult. to we make it difficult, yeah. <laughs> well, the difficult people to convince, you know, obviously are the teachers. Because they say, you know, I've got so many other things I've got to teach, and I've got to teach meditation as well. So the art really is to, is to introduce it to the teachers and, let them see how the children respond. And then this wonderful change is this sort of um, alchemy, <laughs> spiritual alchemy begins to happen uh, in the collective consciousness of the, of the school and of the relationships between the children. The teachers will say the children are nicer to each other. They don't bully each other. A little girl said to me the other day, um, she said, I meditate at home as well. And most most children, we don't we don't tell them to meditate twice a day. <laughs> um, I would we just say meditate whenever you like. And but most of them will say that they do meditate at home. And I asked her, so when do you meditate at home? And you know what she said? She said, whenever I have a fight with my sister. Oh man! I mean, what a beautiful insight. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, I think if there's one, if one, I mean, uh, you know, when, when I, when I visit schools, uh, usually if I go to a, go somewhere, they often take me to the school and meditate with the children and speak to the teachers and, you know, I, I could have a very happy life just going from one school to another because you feel you've, you've, you're, 
you're with these little human beings who are so close to the kingdom of God and uh, <laughs> and you meditate with them you're giving them a little gift that will that they immediately understand and they could and they never forget they never yeah. forget it if you go back two years later they would remember it. yeah because so, it's a tangible and physical experience they've had an encounter yes yeah and I think it, it provides uh, a kind of a glue or a, or a experiential, uh, what's the word, texture for them to absorb and remember everything that they learn at a religious level. Yeah. You know, otherwise, that sort of just today, especially with their, the way their minds uh, are... Um, affected by the media and, and their, their devices, uh, a lot of it just slides off, I think, very quickly. It doesn't, doesn't take root there. Mm -hmm. Meditation gives them a way of absorbing it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think teaching meditation <laughs> is um, a very effective way of... Uh, and I, and I, I wrote to... Uh, a few months, a couple of months ago, I wrote to uh, an archbishop uh, because I'd had a few letters from people saying, "I hear that there are, you know, there are schools, Christian schools and Catholic schools, introducing mindfulness into the school." Yeah, our kids do that at, at the Catholic school here. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, you know, I have nothing against mindfulness. Yeah. But. Uh, I think as as Buddhist uh, a Buddhist friend of mine I was talking to the other day I asked him so what do you think about mindfulness? Well, he was he had uh, very strong reservations about it from a Buddhist perspective. That it it had mindfulness as it's taught had kind of uh, taken these practices out of their context. Right. They become ends on themselves, and the danger, of course, then is that they become self centered rather than creating compassion and wisdom right so, you know you could teach mindfulness to a, a sniper in the in the military uh, you could have a mindful sniper in that sense now i the my, my mindfulness teacher friends will take this on board and they i think they're concerned about it as well anyway but uh it certainly has helped a lot of people uh and I think it's a helpful first step for many people to get to meditation. And then they will often say, well, what's the next step? But in a, in a Christian school or a Catholic uh, environment like these, I think it's a very reasonable question if they say, doesn't this show some kind of spiritual bankruptcy mm. in the Christian world that we have to pay and bring in these secularized forms of of um, of uh, mindfulness meditation practices, uh, and in apparent complete unawareness of our own tradition. And so I wrote to this archbishop, and uh, he responded very quickly and put me in touch with his auxiliary, who's in charge of 
education and we're working on a program now to bring it into schools. And this isn't compared, I know it sounds, that might sound competitive. It's, it's not competitive. Right. No, it's more about linking the practices that are offered as kind of this free floating thing back to the actual tradition out of which they've emerged. Right. Right. Hmm. So, um, so I think, uh, you know, again, you know, as, as I was saying, when we met with the younger generation of contemplative teachers, uh, the future looks uh, a bit more bright and hopeful. <laughs> when you meet with children, it, it, the future looks very bright and mm-hmm. very hopeful. You know, if, if, as long as we can help them to avoid these, the dark forces, and they are dark forces, I think, of... Uh, mental and psychological uh, just 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 what's the word i mean corruption really Isn't closing it? down is the uh, image that comes to my mind yeah right. i mean uh, those forces are there waiting waiting around them and if we can give them a simple contemplative practice uh, that is not self-centered but allows them to really find the joy and the peace of God within themselves. And they just celebrate it. They just like it. Yeah. Um, And they don't question it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I wanted to give you a chance to say a little bit about what's going on with the world community for Christian meditation and um, the new movement. And I'm going to say it wrong. Bon vu, bon vo. Bon vo, pretty good. Bon vo, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, so the world community, uh, as I said, you know, John Main uh, planted the seed and it, uh, it grew over a number of years, uh, has been growing ever since then. In 1991, we had a seminar with B. Griffiths, which sort of was our Pentecost moment, really, and that's when the world community was named and given a structure. And uh, over the last few years, uh, we've been thinking, of course, about the future and succession and planning. And, and one of the questions we consulted with our national communities about was, should we have a, a physical center? This was a monastery without walls, but was this the time for us to have a physical center of our own. And the feedback was very much, yes, this would be a good idea. So we we joined forces with our French national community, which was already looking for a national center. And uh, we started looking in France and we were led to Bonveau, uh, which is about an hour and a half south of Paris, near Poitiers. Um, and when I first went to look at it, I was, it was a bit like falling in love, I must say. <laughs> um, and very, very struck by the energy that, and the, the force there, really, the, the beauty of the place, the stillness, quality of energy there. Then I discovered that there was 
a monastery started the Benedictine monastery had started there in 1119, hmm. which is interestingly 900 years to the, to the year. Um, it had been a monastery until 1792 when the French Revolution happened and it became a private property. Um, but it retains, you know, many features of the original monastic uh, identity. So we, uh, we took a leap of faith and uh, with the support of, of friends, uh, we've never done anything on this scale before. And uh, financially, it was a big undertaking, a uh, risk. In the same week, uh, somebody gave us a million euro to be able to buy it. Mm. And the same week, I got a, a message from a group of women prisoners in Sydney, Australia, who I go to visit when I'm there. And um, they said they'd read about Bonvo and they didn't think they'd be able to come to visit for a few years. <laughs> but... Um, but they they were very connect felt they connected with it and they wanted to contribute so they said it will take us a bit of time but we we'd like to raise a hundred dollars and send it to you wow so because of that kind of support at both ends of the spectrum uh, we're now at the point where this Easter in April will I, I I'll be moving there and that will be my my base. Uh, the main house, the Abbey, will be uh, for a residential community living, be a lay community, um, living in the spirit of the rule of St. Benedict. And um, we'll be celebrating Easter there and we'll be um, having a, a retreat for young adult meditators in July. So we're doing a few events this year. But at the end of the year, beginning of next year, the guest house uh, should be ready. And uh, then we'll be open uh, for larger groups to come. And we also have a, a barn, which is being turned into a uh, conference center, a place where we can have larger groups and speakers and concerts and yoga and bodywork and other things. Mm. So... So Bonveau is uh, is 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 the um, is, is is the major new development really, and but it, it it's not it's uh, facilitates what's been happening in the community worldwide over the year. It doesn't it won't sort of suck the energy in. I think it right. helps to push it out. Um, and over the years, we've we've realised that we can share this gift of meditation with the secular world, finding a language that we can use. We don't hide where we're coming from, what our own roots are, but uh, we, can, we can share it with anyone who is interested and open, open to it. So Bonveau will also be a place where this outreach to the business world or to the medical world or to the educational world and so on, where that can happen as well as being a place where we can form uh, the new generation of teachers in our community. Hmm. Well, I hope to visit someday. Well, you'll be very welcome. Thank so, you. <laughs> all the people 
listening to this if they've stayed awake. Uh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, yeah. <laughs> well, I have a, um, a few questions that I like to ask people at the end. Um, kind of rapid fire Rorschach block test here. Um, so. Yeah, no, it's not live. I'll edit this before I send it out. But <laughs> so far, there's nothing to edit out. So how would you fill in the phrase contemplation is? For everyone. The purpose of contemplation is all about? Love. Is there a word or a phrase that captures the heart of your contemplative experience? First be, and then you are ready for all doing. Hmm. What's your hope for the next generation of contemplative practitioners? That they will be explorers and Peaceful revolutionaries. Mm. And that one was kind of general, but then a specific question. What's your hope for the next, for the future of Christian contemplative tradition? That it will be recognized as the, the soul and the heart of Christian faith. Hmm. Those are my questions. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be with you, Tom, and thank you for the good work you're doing in this podcast. Yeah, thank you for being here. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. You can check out the main podcast page at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash contemplate dash this or the show notes for this episode at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 14. That's the word episode followed by one four, no spaces. Thanks again to all of you who have offered support or who are about to do so either by donating to offset the cost to produce and host the show, which you can do by going to thomasjbushlack.com forward slash donate, or by writing reviews wherever you download your podcasts. I do hope that as this podcast continues to grow, that you find it helpful for deepening your own contemplative practice, whatever your background or spiritual tradition or practice might be. Most importantly, my prayer and hope is that Contemplate This provides a sense of community and shared support on the contemplative journey, which, as we all know, can sometimes be somewhat difficult or or lonely. Knowing that others are entering into this transformative divine silence of God's presence and that others have gone before us can provide a powerful yet gentle reminder of why we continue on this path seeking God in all things. So may you find some encouragement, peace, and joy in the podcast and especially as you share the fruits of your own contemplative practice with others and with the world. Until next time, peace.